Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is my exploration with investors to both understand and unpack what is going on in markets right now and what this means for business and for investors. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review. Let's get into it. My guest today is Tom Georgiou, Director of Beckett Property, Melbourne's leading buyer's advocacy firm. Today we talk about the current market trends, especially since COVID and what's unfolded since and what Tom is seeing in the market at the moment. We talk about how to find and source a good property, what to look for, some tips and traps. And we also talk about the art of negotiating a great deal. I hope you enjoy my conversation. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526798. The information contained in this podcast may include general advice and does not consider your particular circumstances. You should seek advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider if the general advice is right for you. Tom Georgiou, welcome to Masters in Investing. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, Tom, I want to talk about a whole bunch of things today, but the first thing I want to spend some time on is understanding what it is that a buyer's advocate does and day-to-day, like what is your purpose uh, when helping clients? What do you actually do? Great question. (laughs) So, uh, look, basically uh, this is a space that I've been very passionate about for for almost two decades and um, the buyer's advocate space and industry has really evolved uh, in Australia, um, especially in Melbourne and Sydney, probably in the last 20 years. Uh, I think tw- 20 years ago when I first heard about the buyer's advocate or you know, space or what is a buyer's advocate, um, I had no idea what they did and uh, I was quite fascinated by what they did. And then, you know, 17 years later, here I am still doing it. So, um, so what are you, like a secret agent for people who <laughs> want to buy property? Yeah, basically, probably it's, it's, it's almost like the personal trainer. You know, the personal trainer for people who want to buy uh, property and, and, and have a good experience and do the right thing when it comes to buying a property. So, so. why don't people just buy, go buy property themselves? Like wh- why do you have to get involved? Well, it's um, basically, again, it's for people who want to do something better because people don't buy properties for a living. You know, most people are working day-to-day, doing their day job, whether they be in IT or, or finance or whatever. But according to are. most people, most people are pretty good at buying property. That's what they say. Yeah, correct. So um, most people will ma- maybe buy two, three, four properties in their lifetime. Give How take. many properties do you buy? On average, about 65 a year. 65 a year? A year. So average. how many is that a month? Uh, it fluctuates. Um, One and a bit a week? It could be, you know, this this month, for example, I'm looking at buying seven or eight, uh, whereas January I bought three. So, you know, on average, we look at it over on an annual basis, generally you know, 60, 65, up to 70 if it's a busier year. Wow. Um, on average, and that's a blend of homes, investment properties and of right. course development sites as well. So, you know, it's what we do day in, day out, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. You know, we live and breathe buying real estate. And, um, you know, people who do one, two, three transactions in their lifetime will never compete with anyone who's doing it for a living. It's like me trying to jump into the IT space and understand, you know, how to, how to do 
information technology or whichever, I just don't understand that space. So therefore I'd hire a professional to help me with that. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the market right now, right? Like you're hearing um, in, in the paper and on the news about what is going on in the property market. So the thing that I'm really curious about is from your experience, because yep. you're not the paper, you are yep. real life, day to day, dealing with real buyers yep. and, and transacting. Absolutely. Why is it that I can't find when I go through domain or realestate.com.au or, or the paper or whatever, there's, you hear about property prices soaring, you hear about people buying all these property. Like where's the property, man? Like, yeah. they're, not, they're not physically there. Like we can't see them. Yes. Look, there's – well, basically when it comes to the market, you know, what's happening in the market, there's – the market is a thing. It's, 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 it's a big thing in its entirety. But the market's made up of mini markets as well. So – you know, and I, I think that people that take a macro look on real estate. What do you uh, mean by mini markets? Well, okay, for example, there's residential, there's commercial, there's industrial, there's so many right. different sectors to, to property. Uh, there's also different suburbs, there's different states, there's also different streets in every suburb. And, and how much of a difference does a street and a suburb make? Enormous. Enormous. So, if you, you know, the difference of, you know, let's say, for example, in Hawthorne, if you're buying in, in the Grace Park, as precinct, for example, yeah, you could be paying 20, 30% higher premium because you're in the most sought after pocket of Hawthorne, for example. Um, you know, so pockets, you know, estates, they're very, very different in each area and, and they command premiums. Even on the same street, you know, you might have an identical house, one that's on the north side of the street, that could sell for 5 or 10% more for an identical house that's got south orientation. So even on the same street, you can see a massive difference in, in pricing. And that's where these mini markets I talk about is there are streets, there's orientations, there's different types of properties. There are so many mini markets within this overall big market. Um, so I think that uh, – and that's something that we do as advocates. You know, we, we break down the macro and look at it on a very micro level. How do you do that? Through research. Uh, research and experience. Um, because property, you know – we see it all the time. In the media, they're there to sell papers. We understand that. They're doing their job. But, you know, for example, a median price for a property. They'll say the median price for South Yarra might be $1.76 million for this quarter. But how they, how they calculate a median price, it's actually not calculated. If there's 11 sales, they just pick the median, which is the sixth sale. Now, that might be a two-bedroom single front or it might be a four-bedroom house on 400 square metres of land in Stoddington. Um, so that fluctuates all the time. And then all of a sudden people say, oh, wow, South Yarra has had a 22% increase in value in three months. But the reality is, you know, that's based on the median price. But the reality is, is last quarter it might have been a two-bedroom median house that they used and the next quarter might have been a four-bedroom house. So, so they're not comparing... Correct. The two same properties. Correct. So, and that's where, that's what we call the macro, you know, where it's since that, no, you know, there's no suburb that I know of that's had 22% growth in three months. That's impossible. Um, but that, and, but what we look at on a more micro level is we look at data for an example. I can see how many times that individual property itself has sold since the record started in 1970. So I can say, okay, this particular house here, it's sold eight times in 51 years, for example. 
and I can see, well, the capital growth on this individual house has been X per year over 23 years, 40 years, whatever it is. So that's when you're looking at comparing macro to micro. I don't care what the suburb's doing. I want to know what this individual house is doing and what it has done. So that's one, you know, f- um, one aspect of, say, comparing micro versus macro. Um, and then, you know, you get these figures saying oh, stock levels are, are, are low, for example, or stock levels are actually quite high. And they're looking at Australia as opposed to Victoria. Mm-hmm. So, again, you've got to break it down if you want to make the most informed decision and, 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 make, and get the best outcome. You can't look at macro, you've got to break it down. Yeah, property seems to be one of those things where yeah. you – your point you can't look at a suburb because there are certain streets and pockets in that suburb correct and forgetting orientation and and you know the uh the shape of a block and things like that like how much does do people's emotions or people's ego come into property so you know i want to buy the biggest house on the best street and the best suburb like do, do you in your conversations you know do you, do you talk about that? Like, and how much do you think ego plays in their, people's decision-making in the house they want to live in? Yeah, I, th- I think um, emotion, especially ego, is more prevalent in real estate than any other investment you can make. It's the only investment you can really live in, <laughs> basically. You can't live in shares. Um, so what happens is, you know, real estate, and especially if you're buying the family home, for example, it's the biggest emotional and generally the biggest financial decision most people will make in their lifetime. So there's so many factors running. Um, and a real estate agent, you know, they, they, they capitalise on that by bringing everyone to an auction. <laughs> so they're, they're basically, you know, a family or, you know, um, are looking at buying a home. They're saying, okay, is this home going to suit my lifestyle? Is it going to suit my budget? So they're looking at all these individual factors and then they go to an open home inspection and there's 40 other people looking at the same house, that's where a lot of the time the fear will kick in or, mm. or the ego will kick in. Hang on, this is my house. I'm going to basically buy this house and, and that's when they can make bad decisions. And, and that's, the, that's one of the hardest things with real estate and this is where – and we see it time and time again. A lot of people make very, very bad decisions, uh, especially under auction conditions, which are never easy because – they're bringing the sale, you know, to a point and it has a closing time and a closing date. And but it doesn't. Like the vendor doesn't have to sell the property. No, they time. don't have to, correct. But normally when, when a vendor is motivated and on the market and selling, they're generally doing it for a reason most of the time. Um, and then they're getting all these people that want this house and are fighting for this house and then they put it all these ingredients in one big pot let everyone fight for it on the street. So it's uh, pretty incredible the way, especially in Melbourne, which is the auction capital of the world, uh, it's pretty incredible how you know, people buy real estate in Melbourne where they're just competing on this ultra-emotional level. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in 17 years of doing this, we see some ridiculous, ridiculous results. So how do you keep emotion in check? How do you, how do you keep your own emotion in check? And then how do you keep the the emotion of your clients in check as well. Yeah, so you've got to approach property commercially. That's the way I see it. I, I always... The, the, but easier said than done. Yeah, and, and that's where someone like us can help because, you know, we're, we're working with our clients, we're, you know, working with these emotions, you know, we're helping them manage these emotions because it is, it's a very big psychological game. So, you know, first and foremost, 
the training that we do with our clients, you know, once we've built the roadmap for them and they, they, I mean, before you even get to that stage, it's about having the right roadmap, which we'll talk about a bit later. But, um, you know, it's about saying you've got to, this is a commercial decision. Don't move into the property until you've bought it. And that's, that's hard. You know, Emotionally. Like, yeah, correct. Like we get people that come through a house, we, we find a house for them, we say, look, we think this is a good match based on your requirements and your budget. People come in and they're starting to move furniture in mentally <laughs> and you're like, okay, we're going to stop, you know, because um, this is not where you need to be because that's the worst thing. And, and agents in Melbourne, especially in Melbourne, they're unbelievably skilled and trained to pick up on all these little um, you know, f- facets of people and they know. Do you think that's wrong? Uh, no, I think that's just someone that's, that's good at their job. You know, they're working, they're working for the vendor. They're there to work out who's their strongest buyer. That's a really good point. Like, I think getting understanding the parties involved in a transaction and who is working for who. Yeah, correct. I think a lot of people forget that the agent in in this instance we're talking about is working for the vendor. Yeah. And they'll be your best buddy and your best friend and they'll give you kind of, you know, hey, don't tell anyone this, but... Know, yeah. this, that and the other, yeah. but the reality is that they are working for the vendor, aren't they? Yeah, well, the way I look at it is a real estate agent, and, and they're great, they're doing their job, they're there to sell a buyer anything and get the highest price. An agent will assist a buyer, but they work for the vendor, and that's where a lot of people get it, you know, a lot of people get it wrong because a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, I met so-and-so agent, great, he's been really helpful, mm. he's been showing me a couple of properties nice guy. that are coming up. It's like, yeah, okay, are they – I, I bet you they're only showing properties that their company's selling, I'm assuming. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And why are they showing you properties? Oh, well, because they actually want to sell your house once you buy. So, yeah, they might be helping you in a sense, but there's, bit, there's generally a bit of a hidden agenda. So are you kind of like the guy that's in, the, in their corner of the ring 100%. or the buyer, 100%. if you like, yep. to make sure that you, you're giving them good advice and counsel and – in, and you're in their ear and yep. making sure that they don't fall into whatever trap that, that might be set exactly. out in front of them. Yeah, exactly right. Because, I mean, the good thing is when we're working with a client, you know, we are 100% representing them. And I guess that's an amazing thing um, about the industry here. And because Melbourne's such a complicated buying system for real estate, hence why buyer's advocacy has become so enormously popular in Melbourne so recent stats have showed that one in three people now use an advocate. Really? In what was just, that before? Oh, I reckon probably maybe 20 years ago when I, when I first found out about this space, probably 10%, maybe 5%. Mm. And it's now, it's just rapidly growing where, you know, one in three in Melbourne now use an advocate. And why is Melbourne complex? You said Melbourne's complex. Why? Uh, because of the, I think the auction system mainly. Um, What's your take on the auction system? Well, I think it can be – if, if rightly used, it can be great for a vendor. Absolutely. So the auction system is good for the vendor? Good for the vendor, correct. So, you know, because – But is it, it not a fair and open and transparent way of determining the price that the market is willing to pay on at that point in time? Absolutely. Like it's – an auction is the most – is the most transparent – way and what we call social proof a lot of people will feel a lot of vendors will know that they've exhausted a market sure when they're selling and a lot of buyers can see their competition so it's great in a sense that oh, i can see that there's four other bidders who genuinely want this home 
Uh, the private sales system is always – there's a lack of transparency there because you don't really know who you're competing against. It's quite – Do you yeah. need to know who you're competing against? Absolutely. Why? Well, because to make sure that you're not overpaying for something that you don't have to. You know, if you don't know what your competition is or who your competition is, then they might be out at 2.1 and, and a real estate agent doing their job and doing it well could get you to 2.3. You've just overpaid by 200000 when you didn't need to. So these are all things you have to navigate through when buying. There's no easy way to buy. Buying at auction is difficult. Buying privately is difficult. Um, you've just got to know how to navigate the best way What's through. What's your favourite way of buying? It doesn't bother me. You just want to buy? No, it doesn't bother me. Um, in, in all fairness, whether it's a private... My favourite way to buy is the best way to contain price. And, 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 and that's a case-by-case scenario. Mm. So if it's a private sale, um, you know, we will know we'll get a very, very good gauge on who our competition is and how to navigate through that. And always remember that there's three different systems and there's three different procedures for a private sale process. You know, there's the, the blind auction, there's the first right of refusal, uh, or there's the EOI with a closing date. Mm. So there's actually different methods for the private sale. Uh, auction's fine as well, you know, great in the sense that I can see my competition, but again, coming back to that emotion, People that are going to an auction, let's say there's five bidders, they saw the property four weeks ago, they've been through the property two or three times, they've been talking about it, you know, lying in bed at night going, yep, this is for us, this is our future home. Then they think about it all week, they wake up Saturday morning, they have 16 coffees before an auction and they just let it fly, you know, at, at whatever time the auction's on. So, you know, you've got a lot of emotion happening in a very, very, very short window mm. or period of time auctions can be done within five or ten minutes mm. or they can go for half an hour but you know you've got all those emotions there uh, and you know and they're strategic you know the agents are doing it right at the front of the house uh, where you can see it you can picture yourself in that front yard or the driveway parking there and you know they're letting that emotion fly. Do you think that was always you know by design or that's just how it's always been sorry mm. is that by design or that's how it was always done? Oh, look, the auction system's been going for as long as, you know, I, you know I, I've been in the space, which is, you know, almost two decades. So, um, it's been going on for centuries. Yeah. I mean, auctions have been going on for a very, very, very long time. But the auction system in Melbourne, you know, I can remember as, as, as early as back as the 90s. Um, the 1990s is when I probably went to my first auction. So, um, but yeah, so basically it's, um, it, it's a great way for a vendor to maximise price. So... Strategy is, you know, again, with using an advocate, is we need to combat that as best as we can. And how do you um, combat that when you're at an auction? Yep. You've, I don't know whether your client, the buyer, is with you or, yep. I don't know, tucked away on the other side of yep. the group somewhere yep. and you've got an earpiece in, I don't know, again, looking like a bit of a secret <laughs> agent and your sunglasses. But um, um, how, how do you, how do you what, when you're at an auction, sort of what's the art in being able to to contain price while you're there in the heat of the moment? The best way to contain price starts before the auction. Um, so if you're going to an auction, let's say you've identified a property, auction campaigns generally get run for three and a half to four weeks. Right. So four Saturdays they're open, including the auction day. Um, so, you know, most people have seen the property, you know, 80, I think it's like 83 or something percent of buyers, of home, of property buyers will come through the first Saturday. So an agent will get a very, very good gauge on how well the property's performing literally on the first Saturday mm. it's open. 
And then generally week two, week three, the numbers thin out, people start coming back for repeat inspections. And then by the fourth week of the campaign, they've got a pretty good gauge on how, how the auction is shaping up. Um, for us to – the best way to contain um, price starts from, well, do we need to go to auction? Just because a property is scheduled to go to auction doesn't mean it has to go to auction. Do you control that? Yeah, absolutely. We can control the tempo as best as we can. So, How do you do that? By putting in offers prior. You know, so and you decide when that's a good idea and when that's not a good idea. Absolutely. Because yeah. there's a lot of um, – call them tips, if you like <coughs> – Tips that say these are the things that you should do and these are the rules. Yeah. I just find it hard to believe that there's one set of rules for every situation. There's not. Yeah. There's, there's multiple sets of rules for each individual property and each individual campaign. So, so there are so many different things you have to consider. So you, you've, got to, you've got to take into consideration where is the agent's quote range, which is a big one in Melbourne. You know, like it, 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 everyone knows... Properties are generally going to sell above the advertised price range. It's, it's a matter of how much beyond that range. That's just the, the, the accepted norm. Yeah, pretty much. And, and we always generally say most properties are on, you know, we hate, hate using the word underquoted, but... Isn't know, that illegal? Attractively, well, yes and no, to be honest. There are rules in place, but there's also ways that you can get around it as well. So I think, I think the underquoting laws that came in in 2017 are actually a bit of a waste personally, because they brought in these new rules, but then they also gave vendors and agents um, a way out, you know, right. you know, which is a whole other, you know, can of worms. But um, so I've got my views on that. But, but basically... What are your views on that? Share them with us. Well, let's say a classic example is um, the rules that came into play, the underquoting rules in 2017 were, you know, the if... Well, first and foremost, a vendor still does not have to give a reserve price until before the auction. So if an agent sits down with a, with a vendor and says, hey, yep, you want to sell your house, yep, no problem, the agent says, I believe the property's worth somewhere between $1.8 and $2 million, for example. And the agent says, yeah, I kind of agree. The agent, you know, the agent says, okay, but we don't need your reserve just yet. You know, we believe it's worth that. Um, the, the vendor can, can agree. Um, and then they market the property $1.8 to $1.98 million, whatever it is. Now, during the campaign, the vendor has every right to change their mind. They might say, we had 80 people through last mm. Saturday. Maybe we're a bit light on price. Because, I mean, even to their defence, no one knows what the house is worth until sure. it's sure. getting closer to the day. Um, and so, even, like you say, the reserve can yeah, change, right? Correct. So, you know, um, and, and look, the, and Consumer Affairs, you know, who, who set the rules basically say, look, a vendor has a right to test the sure. market. So I get that. But they're testing the market, you know, and buyers are not sure where it, where the, where it sits, you know, value-wise or price-wise. So you get to a week before auction, the vendor turns around and says, yes, I know we've been advertising this property at 1.8 to 1.98 million. I think it's now worth 2.2. Or I read an article last week that said the market's jumped 10%. Mm. I now want 2.2 million. So sometimes it's actually not the agent's fault. It can be the vendor that just changes, you know, shifts the goalposts. Um, so and then you, know, you get to auction day, and all of a sudden mm. it's not on the market at two million, and the vendor wants two point two. So the underquoting laws still allow that. They still allow that that you know, a vendor can test the market. Sure. So the the goalposts can shift still during a campaign, and how they do that. But the underquoting laws that came out basically stated that if anyone receives an offer during a campaign, let's say the, the advertised range is one point eight million to one point nine eight million. 
and I come in and offer $2 million, by law, they have to change the quote range. Right, to okay. To start from $2 million. All good and well. However, if the agent has a document that says we're not receiving offers prior to auction, they don't have to do anything. And so there's just, it's a moot point. Mm. You know, so these underquoting laws that came in, really, they don't mean anything because an agent can sit there and say, look, we're going to auction, we believe it's worth, you know, this kind of range. If you want more than that, that's kind of okay because, you know, you don't have to give me your reserve just yet. Let's test the market. But by the way, sign this document that says we're not accepting offers prior so we don't have to move our quote range if we get an offer. So it's actually irrelevant. Um, and again, as an advocate, these are things that we're educating our clients with. You know, we get that question a lot. Oh, aren't there underquoting laws? Yes, they are, but they don't mean anything. You know, it's just extra paperwork an agent has to sign yeah. in reality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where, you know, again, coming back to the auction and how to prepare for it and how to contain price... Um, the key is it's case by case. You've got to work out where the agents are quoting the property at. Um, what's it worth? I mean, a huge part of our job is not only finding the property that's right for our clients and that's good quality property, it's what's it worth? Is it within their budget? So we can provide that data. Again, coming back to macro, this is what the actual property is worth based on real data, real sales. You know, we can look at years worth of data to work out a value of a property if we need to. Um, and then coming back to, you know, how do you contain price? Well, we can put an offer in prior to auction if we want to. Now, if the agent doesn't have that paperwork that I was just talking about, mm. then they have to move the quote range. Um, or, you know, sometimes we know if something's quite underquoted or, you know, we think it's well under-marketed where we think it sits value-wise, if it was quoted 1.8 to 1.98, but my data shows that the property's actually worth 2.1 million, I might put an offering of 2 million and 50, for example, before auction, which is still under where I see value, um, but above the quote range. Now, that could put the agent on the back foot. They think, well, okay, maybe I do have to move the quote range if I don't accept this offer. So that's one thing. Uh, the next thing will be, well, if I don't accept this offer, will I get that on auction day? These are all the strategies and systems that we're doing prior to auction. This is generally happening a week before the auction day. So we're getting tested from an agent as to where we're at and where the competition's at, but we're then testing the agent back to work out, well, really, if you're not going to accept my $2 million, really, where are you sitting on this property? Mm. You know, so our offer might not get accepted prior to auction, um, but it gives me a very, very good range or gauge on where the expectations really are for that property. Sounds like a bit of a poker game. It is, absolutely. So, and then there's all and to play these, poker, you need yeah. to know what you're doing. Correct, yeah. And that, that, that comes back to experience. Uh, you know, again, we're doing it day in, day I mean, my job is to buy great real estate at the cheapest possible price. That's, what, that's our job. Um, so we're doing everything we can to help our clients navigate through that tricky system of, private sales, auctions, all those things. But aren't you also incentivised, Tom, to, to almost pay more because you get paid more based on the high price? Like, how does, that, how does that work? Do you feel like there's some element of conflict there whereby you're trying to work for the buyer and get the lowest price, but at the same time, you've got to get paid for your services? And how do you manage that? Yeah, so we manage it because every, every time that we're working with a client, it, it's a joint venture. 
So first and foremost, we give the clients the option of whether they prefer a fixed fee, for example. Our fee is success-based, first and foremost. Right, what does that mean? So we don't charge our clients until we've actually bought them a property. So we actually carry a lot of risk with this model. Um, a lot of advocates might take 50% up front. We take a very, very small engagement fee up front, um, but pretty much like 95% of our fees payable once we, once we buy a property. Um, so it's a joint venture. So we give the client up front before we even start, we say, do you prefer a fixed amount? So whether we buy for 1.9 or 2.2, doesn't matter. It's a, it's a fixed dollar amount. So that doesn't make any difference. Uh, or we ask them if they prefer a percentage-based amount. And that's where it's based on the, the price that we pay. Mm-hmm. So we'd probably say maybe 55 to 60% of our clients will take the fixed yeah, fee. right. Yep. And why do they do that? Is, like, what's the rationale? We generally find that people that have a, a, probably a, a, a more a tighter budget, let's say they'll say, look, I've got 1.9 to 2 million, for example. Because mm. um, they're pretty, it's a pretty strict budget, we generally find that it doesn't really make a difference if mm. it's a percentage right. of free. I mean, we're talking a few dollars difference here and there. Um, we also, we, but we generally find that people that might have a, a different scope. So recently we've had a client who gave me a budget between three and a half and five million dollars. Big difference. Mm. Now three and a half million means that they're going to do something that they're going to do a full renovation to. Uh, when we get to you know, four and a half to five million they want to turn key property. Mm. So these particular clients gave us they preferred the percentage range because naturally if we bought at three and a half it's Makes sense. Cheaper. Yeah, cheaper. Um, but we let the client decide first and foremost and it is success based. So we don't want to invoice our clients until we've done a great job, we've provided them with all the data and they can make the most informed decision. And the data's there. And if I'm running on a property, coming back to that example, and it's quoted 1.8 to 1.98, I'll say to my clients, here's three or six or two, however many comparable sales. And this here backs up the evidence that this property is actually worth $2.50, mm. for example. Um, so when they're looking at that data, prior to even trying to buy it, they've really, they're really comfortable with the data and the research that we've done. And they say, yeah, this is actually worth two million fifty. Now we know if we buy under that, for example, then we're getting them, we're, they're ahead. You know, we're buying it under market value or we're paying market value. Market value is just this artificial number that, that no one's really bought at and you've bought yeah. lower. Is it more of like this feel good factor where Psychologically, you've anchored your mind uh, and anchored the the price of 2.1. You've bought at 2.05, so you kind of feel good. Is that? Well, I think it's about money. That's why people engage us. You know, again, it's it's about anyone can find a property online and go pay any price for it. I guess it just depends on how how much you value stress, your time, and your finances, and getting it right because. The amount of people that get it wrong and don't plan. I mean, our interestingly enough, our line of work is very, very similar to your line of work, where you're building, you know, you're modelling, you're building roadmaps for people. Um, the hardest part of buying real estate is that roadmap, mm. and so many people get it wrong. So mm. many people get it wrong. Um, we have people coming to us and they say, "Look, we only we bought our house 18 months ago. We've outgrown it. Oh, it's wrong. The transaction costs in property." are enormous. Mm. It's 5.5% stamp duty. Then if you sell, you've got to pay an agent's commission, you've got to 
you know, property styling, marketing, and then guess what? You've got to pay 5.5% again. You're just giving money away. So, you know, when it comes down to that modelling that we do, it's we get our clients thinking ahead. Okay, great, you're buying a home. Are you planning to have children? Yeah, we're actually planning to have kids. Okay, well, this quadruple-storey townhouse in Brunswick is not going to work for you <laughs> for about in 18 months' time. Oh, okay, didn't think of that, you know. Um, I've got a great clients at the moment that we're working with. You know, we've gone through some, some properties, young couple, probably going to have kids in the next three years. We've shown them a couple of properties. They want to be close to the city and we've shown them some properties that are 200 square metres of land. I said, guys, you are going to outgrow this in about two or three years' time. You will outgrow it. So then we've made the decision collectively to, to push one or two suburbs out and get the bigger block, mm. which they're going to last 10 years. Uh, or they can add value, they can do an extension to, you know. So the trade-off, it's always when you're breaking it, again, breaking it down micro, it's coming, it's bringing it back to area versus accommodation when it comes to getting the right property. Am I getting the uh, sufficient and the right amount of accommodation in the, in the property? And am I in a suburb that's going to give me, you know, the right lifestyle? Am I in an area? So you've got to break it down and that's how you start getting a great strategy and a great roadmap to find the right property. It sounds like there's a bit of art to this and maybe some science when you're crunching some numbers. Planning. Absolutely. Yeah. A, lot, a, lot of, a lot of initial workshopping, planning, sitting down with clients, unpacking their goals. And are people open to this? Like do 100%. they, they yeah. share this with yeah. you? And I think a lot of people, um, I mean, look, again, we've been doing this. We're quite different um, to most advocates because – Myself personally, I come similar to yourself, Rob. I come from a financial background where I learnt all of this. You know, twenty years ago when I used to work for one of the major banks, coming from that 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 background, doing the finance, that was that was great training for me to to, to move into the. But don't people come to you and go, mate? What do you want to know this stuff for? I just yeah. want to buy a house. What, why do you need Sometimes. to know all these other things? Yeah. So how quite, do you manage that? Well, we just tell them, do you want to buy or do you want to buy well? The more you tell me, the more I can help you. Um, and we have so many aha moments with clients when mm. and especially especially with couples a lot of the times couples are not on the same page so you know we've got to put the lab coat on go into the lab and start workshopping and start working with them to help them get to that that kind of understanding so that's probably one of the biggest reasons people don't buy is that they're just their goals aren't aligned you know, mm. one partner's thinking one thing the other's thinking another and our job is to bring them together. Like with our initial workshopping and consulting, we do it if, – if, if two people are buying a home, if a couple is buying a home, we do it together. There's no point in me having a chat with one and then a, a separate chat yeah, with the other. Sure. We, we have to get everyone on the same page. Sure. When we're looking at houses, it's important that the couples come together because, you know, they, they find things in the house that – and presumably you're talking about houses that they want to live in. Correct. Like Absolutely. if it's pure investment. Investment's a different model. Okay. I mean, in terms of how we pick properties is the same in terms of the quality we look for. And the value and, and all the, those and things. And the value, yeah. so that, that's the same. But when you come into buying a home, you know, it's about getting, you know, making a decision. I always say there's no such thing as a bad inspection for a property. Because when, when we take a client through a, through a property, we walk them through get them to understand why we think it's a great property, I guess on paper, but we, are, we, we understand that the client is living there. You know, I've found triple A grade real estate for a client before, many times, brought them through and said, guys, on paper, this is an 11 out of 10 house. It, it's almost unfaultable. But, you know, property has a feel about it. 
again, this, this, this goes back into the Vibe. emotion. And yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it probably has a feel, right? So yeah. people, people will generally walk through a home and go, Tom, I know that this, on paper this is an amazing property. It's just not the right feel for us. And we totally understand that. Mm. And that's the thing. It's an that, intangible thing. Correct. Yeah. You know, you know is this going to be your next chapter? Mm. And, and that's the only thing I can't – all I can do is facilitate opportunities. But I always say to my clients, I'm a facilitator, but you're the decision maker. I will show you the best of the best um, because realistically, if there's 80 properties on the market at one time, you know, and I've once I apply our grading and you know what we look for in property. And so you've I, got a methodology and a process. Yeah, Forty-four to fil- points yeah. to filter out what's good, what's, what's bad. bad. Yeah. So yeah. We, we've we've got forty-four major points that we look for in every property, and that's broken down into features of the home, the land, and the location. So once we apply that science to you know the properties that we're looking at, out of eighty, that'll probably whittle the list down to ten. Wow. So then out of really the set, the other 70, they're what we consider compromised properties, properties that we don't recommend to clients, let the other people buy those properties. Because that's they're the kind of properties that what we see is, is pu- uh, you know, bad investments, firstly. So the kind of properties that you know, will struggle to sell in a market or, or, or a normal market, they generally only sell in hot markets. Mm. Um, they're the ones that, if the market does correct, they're the ones that generally take the bigger hit mm. because they're compromised. Uh, and they're generally the ones that don't provide the best lifestyle for people. Mm. So it, it, they all, they all, it, it's always there. So once we whittle that list down, we might get that list down to 10. Now, out of that 10, there might only be two, one, two or three that are a potential match for my client. So the list whittles down very, very, very quickly. On average, we're probably only working within about five to eight percent of properties on the market. And so, with what's going on at the moment now, with the lack of properties on yep. the market, yep. um, h- how big is the off-market market at the moment? Yeah, look, there's all like like again coming back to um, the mini markets. That's another market within a market mm. is the off-market, and uh, the off-market is fantastic. That that's um, we do a lot. We operate a lot in that space because naturally. Because and can someone like me, Tom, see that? Like, w- literally, man, when I'm in bed mm. at 10, 10.30 and I'll just open up the domain app and go, yeah. let me see what's going on. Yeah. Like, there's n- night after night, week after week, there's just nothing. Yeah. And so I can't see those properties. Correct. So those properties, only they come through network and relationships. So these are networks and relationships that we've built up with real estate agents mm. over, well, you know, 17 years that I've been doing this. So... You know, our database of real estate agents now is getting close to you know, 1,650 agents wow. um, that we've built up in all throughout Melbourne. We only operate in Melbourne. So those agents hear from us weekly. This is what we need. This is what we're looking for. You know, we're always a little bit fuzzy with our budget, naturally. You know, we have to give them some sort of indication of what level we're looking at, but we try to keep the budget. Naturally, we don't want to expose that um, with our clients, but we have to give... So we keep that pretty protected, um, but what we, we are blasting out there with this database and with these agents is what we're looking for. We're looking for this area. We're looking for this kind of house. Have you got anything? Have you got anything upcoming? Have you got anything off market? Not everyone wants to go to market. Mm. In this climate, I think they're mad. I think anyone that doesn't go to market at the moment is crazy because Why? It's, so, it's so hot. So it's, it's a seller's market right now. So what does seller's market mean? The way I interpret mm. seller's market is it's expensive. Don't buy. Yeah. Because it's not a buyer's market. Correct. And if you're talking strictly financial, yeah. like 
that, that, that's a nice way of, of yeah. saying that it's, it's, a, yeah. uh, it's an expensive market. But if you bought something today at 2.1 million and in six months' time it's worth 2.2 because we're in a hot market, is that a good financial decision? Depends if you're selling in six months' time or not, right? <laughs> Correct. And that's what it all comes back to. Um, I mean, generally, it's... And generally, people don't buy and sell in six months. Like, exactly. To your point exactly before about right. stamp duty, marketing, furniture. Correct. It's really, yeah. You're not going to make any money. Yeah, but generally, if people are buying in a hot market, and, and, and we've got plenty of examples like this, you know, when I look back at all the hot markets that we've operated in, um, you know, you, 2010 was a classic example. post GFC, mm. 2009, 2010 were really, it was a really, really, really hot market. Interest rates got slashed and historically we, we know, I, I can name so many times that when interest rates get lowered or more attractive, the market booms every time. Well, every the, time. the market bottomed out in 2012. Correct. Bottom of the market. Correct. So what happened was, you know, we had the GFC, had, all of a sudden we had first home buyer grants, stimulus packages, lower interest rates, and then the market soared, 2009, 2010. And what happened is anyone who bought literally at the end of 2010, the market cooled off in 2011, naturally, because interest rates started going up again. Now, yeah, of course, we were buying properties in 2010. The market was moving. No one has the crystal ball as to when that market's going to slow down or cool off. Mm. So what happens is 2011 the market starts settling, it starts finding its feet, it starts balancing out. Now, if you bought a property in December 2010, you think, oh, if I just had waited two or three more months, I might have saved a few dollars, you know. But they're not selling, naturally. It's a long game. If you're in property short term, it's not for you. So let's talk about that. Like, I'm sure you hear people coming to you and talking about, um, and I guess more, this is more around the investing side, whereby people want to come flip property. Like, yep. you know, we've seen reality TV show after reality yep. TV show showing viewers how easy how it is easy. and how good does it look and how much money you make afterwards. So why, yep. wouldn't, why wouldn't everybody want to do that? Yeah. Like this whole concept of property flipping and buying and selling property in, within six months, like how realistic is this? Well, that, it, it comes down to that's when you're gambling and that's when you're investing. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, most pretty much all of our clients, home buyer clients are long term. Sure, they actually are not too fussed with what the market's doing. You know, because why they're, they're in it for the long term. Okay, it's a circumstantial decision. They're motivated by lifestyle. Sure, um, not enough toilets in the house. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> or you know, now the the craze is the extra extra study and yeah, all yeah. that with, with everything. Um, you know, so they're not phased. You know, like for an example, I mean, the silver lining to that 2010 story was that. 2012, the market settled, and then we had a five-year bull run <laughs> from 13 to 18, um, where we saw about 70% growth in five years. So that's the silver lining: is the people that bought in 2010 before the market settled, they thought, well, give it another year or two, and the market was flying again. Um, so it doesn't, you know, yeah, you never know. We don't have the crystal balls to when the market's going to be heating up or cooling down. All, all, all we know is what's happening right now. So when would you advocate the whole concept of property flipping? When it comes to property flipping, again, that's when you need a little bit of luck on your side because, again, And presumably you need to know what the hell you're doing, right? A hundred percent, yeah, exactly. So we do property, we help clients with this, this modelling because we understand the market, we know what's good value. But generally, if you want to flip property, because it does, on TV, it looks easy. You watch the block, everyone, oh my God, the block craze has been, you know, for mm. the last 10 years in Melbourne, everyone thinks it's easy. The, the reality is, is probably like 17 or 18% of property flips 
actually make money. Mm. And the other 80 odd percent. And forget the, forget the stress, the anxiety yeah. and all, the, all of that that comes along with it yeah. during that time. Yeah, correct. Like the, the, the reality is once you buy a property, you know, you've got to pay whatever the property's worth, then you've got to pay all your stamps and all mm. your duties. Um, then you've got to get, you know, all the building works, which mm. and that's what's probably hurt that market the most is building costs have gone through the roof. Mm. Through the roof. Um, it, it's, it's, and that's for developers as well. It's getting so hard for developers to develop now uh, because of these costs. So then all of a sudden, you know, if you think a project's going to cost you 200 grand, it'll probably cost you three, 350. So a yeah, lot well. of people um, underestimate how much, you know, the, um, the, you know, the building the building's going to cost and the, and, and, and the tradesmen's going to cost. And then you've got to know your numbers on the back end, which again, most people get wrong. Again, yeah. it comes down to the micro. And people mm. say, oh, okay, how this house on the street sold for 1.5 and I'm going to buy one. It's south-facing, but, you know, it's similar. I'll pay 1.45 for it, whichever it is. But that one's off 1.5. Back to the micro. Okay, that one that's south-facing is going to really struggle to sell because Melbournians don't buy south-facing properties. You know, just because that one on the north side got a big price doesn't mean the other one is. Mm. And that's where you've got to really crunch the numbers. You know, if you're buying a property to flip, for example, you've got to go, okay, well, what's it worth as it is? What am I – got to do a feasibility study. What's my holding costs? What's my renovation costs? What's the resale? And what's it realistically going to sell for? Again, you've got to do your data on that because a real estate agent – if you say if you say to an agent, oh, I'm going to buy this for 1.5, I'm going to spend 250 you know, on, on building renovation works, that's 1.75 plus my stamps, plus my holding costs, selling mm. costs, da-da-da-da-da. That might all come to 1.92 mil. And then you say to an agent, what's that going to sell for on the back end? Oh, you'll get 2.2 easy. Really? Okay. Well, wh- where's the data surrounding and that? The mar- and the margin for error there is just oh, so, so skinny, slim, right? Correct. And then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden COVID hits and you're trying to sell as soon as mm-hmm. COVID hits. And your capital's so, tied up in this thing, right? And your capital's tied yeah. up. And, and, and that's where, again... People do this for a living. Developers, builders, they all do it for a living. But, you know, people who think it's easy to flip, if the market's behind you and it's heading in the right direction, great, you might get lucky, you know. If, you know and then where it can be very profitable is where you do the right numbers, you do the right feasibility, you know you've got some good margin. And then the market conditions, you know, if you've got the wind behind you, it can mm. be a very successful project. I don't know how many, I don't know too many people, Tom, that really want to punt their financial wealth and their balance sheet wealth just with the roll of the dice yeah exactly um the I, yeah correct and i think the whole con that you mentioned before you said and i really like that you said you, you can either buy or you can buy well and, yeah. I, and i think it comes down to yeah. what this may cost you if yeah. you don't go through the exercise properly so correct. it's an ex- you know people talk about oh it's expensive to do this or it's expensive to engage that person or whatever yeah. the case may be i guess the true unknown is well how expensive is it if you don't? Correct. And what is the cost on the other side? And you'll never know. Yeah, yeah. You're never going to know. You'll only find out when you when you're live. And like I said, something's worth two million. You pay two point two. Right. That hurts. Secondly, you buy the wrong house. Then your lifestyle sucks. Oh God, I shouldn't have bought that south facing property. It's dark. It's cold all the time. I should have got the north facing. Should have got the west facing. Whatever. Um, oh, you know. I really like this house, but it's 2Ks from the nearest train station. Gee, that walk to the train station really bugs me every day. You know, these are things that 
again, getting it wrong. And if you're not thinking about these things, you know, classic example, you know, my job is to talk people out of property sometimes, you know. A uh, client brought us a property that they wanted us to buy, you know. Uh, it goes to auction tomorrow. They brought me this particular property, which is something we also do. People can bring me a property, get my views and help them buy it. Um, I actually went into the property and talked them out of it. You know, the master bedroom was really small. You know, the master bedroom was downstairs and the rest of the bedrooms were upstairs. I said, do you want to be separated from your children? Oh, actually, you know what? No, they're quite young. All right, well, okay, that's a problem. Going you know, up those going stairs upstairs, in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, <laughs> correct. So you've got a master bedroom downstairs and three other bedrooms upstairs. Okay, so you're separated. Is there scope to put a master bedroom upstairs? I had a look. No, there's not. You can't. There's not enough room to do a master with a, with a walk-in robe and, a, and, a, and an ensuite. Uh, okay, now let's look at the master bedroom downstairs. It's tiny and they were, they were quite full. It was a very, very, very big block of land. It was 1,025 square metres with a beautiful garden. Now, of course, during the open inspection, the windows were open, so the bedroom looks huge. Yeah. And you, don't, you actually don't even look at the bedroom because you're too busy looking at this amazing garden. So I put the blinds down uh, uh, in the bedroom and I said, what do you think of the bedroom now? And it's a shoebox. So all of a sudden we've got this tiny master bedroom that's then separated from upstairs and these are the, the points that we brought to the table and then we actually talked them out of it. So now you wouldn't even think, I wouldn't even think about putting the blinds down and just correct. seeing what it looks like. It's also, you know, turning the lights off. Yeah. Agents hate that, so really? uh, you didn't hear this from me, but turning the lights off when you're at an open to see how dark a property is during the day. Mm. All these noticed that actually. The lights, all, all the lights are always on. Always, correct. Yeah, they're there to sell something. You know, you've got to expose a property, you know. Um, is it structurally? We get building and pest inspections done. Is this property riddled with pest activity? Mm. Does it need rest? I went through one last night for one of my investor clients. The house needs restumping. We're off it. Restumping can be a real can of worms. What's the worst brief you've had from a client? Um, I wouldn't say worst because we support every client and their decisions and their plans. Um, I'd probably say some of the more let me, challenging ones. Let me rephrase ones. it. Yeah, the more challenging <laughs> ones. Um, well, what's very unhelpful for you? Um, less. Like as in not not being able kind of to extract what they're really looking for. Mm. But we're very good at that. We're very good at helping Some people clients. don't know what they want. That's but our job. That's our them? job is to help them find it. Correct. Right. And that's why we get people coming to us that have been looking on and off one year, two years. Oh, we just don't know. We, we, we haven't bought. I'll find out very, very, very quickly within one meeting why someone hasn't bought every time. On, they've got the wrong scope. They're looking at four different regions. They're looking at mm. West Footscray. They're looking in Brighton. You know, like how can you make a decision when you're when you're trekking all over Melbourne? You're not understanding an area. You know, um, a lot of people don't buy because of fear. You know, fear of what? Fear of debt. You know, on a, a mortgage. Mm. I'm, you know, I really yeah. don't want that mortgage. So you go into that. Don't we go it? into it. We we talk about it. We say, okay, well, what is it about the mortgage? That and what about like? People having this fear, and I have, you know, friends of mine and friends of, of ours um, who don't buy property because the market's going to crash. The market. Yep. So this whole, I, I want to buy when the market crashes, but then yep. you classic, I want to wait till it falls even further. So they yep. never end up buying. Oh, yeah. do, you, do you meet those people who just... All the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, there's people who have been wanting to buy. Uh, I always say, I'll break it down, there's, there's people who are looking and then there's people who are looking to buy. There's the habitual looker mm. and they're the ones that I probably spoke to 10 years ago and mm. still haven't bought mm. um, because they're waiting for this opportune time. Mm. And the funny thing is, is we've actually had some opportune times to buy but you don't know it 
Until yeah. after it's gone. Until after it's gone, correct. And then you so, wait for the next one. Correct. And I, I uh, interestingly enough, I had, a, I had a really interesting conversation with someone last year um, during COVID when we look back at COVID now, COVID was a, a great buying market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the prices were lower last year, naturally. Um, and I had someone saying, oh, you know, I'm waiting for the market to drop, I'm waiting for the market to drop, you know, et cetera, et cetera. March and April 2020, the market was very wobbly. It was, when COVID first hit, it was very uncertain. People were like, oh, my God, if, if I'm selling right now, I'll take whatever I can get. Um, pandemic, you know, that was that was actually the market where, where my eyes lit up. I thought, this is an opportunity here. Isn't that really interesting? Like, it, mm. every time we look back in the rearview mirror... Yep. And we have these situations. It doesn't feel like it at the time. No. But it's always in the rearview mirror and with the benefit of hindsight mm. that the point in time where there was crisis, bad news, this is not good, don't do... Mm. Like, that is the time to buy stuff, right? Correct, yeah. But we, we don't. Correct, exactly. Well, I do. This is the difference. Is because I... For me, it doesn't... The best time to buy real estate is when there's less buyers. It's as simple as that. Because if there's more buyers, you're paying a premium. Mm. If there's less buyers, you're paying less of a premium. So, and you're not going to get many windows, especially in Melbourne. You're not going to get. You're going to get the majority of the time. Melbourne generally goes up, or it levels off. I've only seen it wobble at during the GFC, which is very quick, mind you, mm. and during COVID, which literally it lasted six or seven weeks. I'm not joking. And so, do you think fundamentally there's a lot of statistics around? supply and demand and, yep. and, you know, all of, all of that. Um, factually, do we just have a shortage of property? Like what, yep. what in your mind, Tom, is the driver of price? Yep. So basically, of course, um, when it, okay, so let's look at supply and demand first and foremost. So supply has become a big problem since COVID. So we, we were coming off a very hot market in 2019, very, very hot market post-election. Then we hit late Feb, early March, and it got really, really, really wobbly. Um, again, a lot of buyers dropped out of the market. We're not buying. And I understand what, what, why, why weren't people buying? Why were your clients saying in February last year, Tom, we're not doing this? Yeah. Like, what, so, what was their reason? So we, at that time, when we hit March, we were going into um, COVID with a very, very heavy client book. Um, we had a lot of clients buying at that time. We probably had close to 25% of our clients that Drop just out. said, hang on, let's just see what happens. We're not sure. Job security, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, we don't know what we're dealing with here. And I said, I get it. The remaining 75, you know, 80% clients were saying, what do we do here? And I said, well, generally these are the great great times to buy. Mm. If your job's secure and you're comfortable, let's do it. And if you can find the right place. And you find the right place. Yeah. Correct. Because I said, it doesn't matter what the market's doing, you've got to find the right opportunity. You know, the market could be going up or going down, but it's about you finding the right opportunity. And so now we're almost a year from, from March yes. last year, right? Which is, and which supply is still a problem. So supply is still a happened. problem. That's what happened right. because we hit March and... Which is bad for buyers because they're paying more so stock. Yeah. And, and, and if you want to look at supply, um, the best test of that was between May, June, July last year. Because what happened was when COVID hit... Anyone who didn't need to sell, literally anyone who maybe hadn't already bought their next home, some people buy first, sell second, people who had to sell 
during March and April sold and they kind of took whatever they could get. Um, anyone who didn't need to sell, like we saw an 80% reduction of stock overnight within a, a weeks. Mm. It was incredible. Um, anything that was coming on the market didn't. Anything that was on the market came off. Mm. And the only people who sold in March and April last year were people who had to sell, circumstantial sellers. Great for us. We got some great deals. I reckon we probably had maybe about a 5%, you know, probably reduction in that time. We had one auction that we went to. By the, the Monday of that week, there was about five or six people running on it. By the time we got to Friday, that was the week it was all hitting and mm. it was mid-March. By the time we got to Friday, we were speaking to the agent. Every day they lost a buyer. By the time we got to Friday, the agent said, Tom, we've only got one other buyer and yourselves. And are they open with you with that information? Very open. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, because these these, we're dealing with these guys and girls all the time you know, on, a, on a daily basis. We got to auction that Saturday. It was us. <laughs> we were the only ones there. <laughs> And we stole it. We absolutely stole it. And we all know what's happened since then, right? And then, you know, but that was, you know, again, I see opportunity in that because, again, coming back to property, it's a long game. Mm. And if you're in it for the short term, it's not for you. So people, our clients, that, you know, kind of 75, close to 80% who stayed the course and bought in March, April and so on did really well. Mm. And they're looking back now thinking, thank God. Um, out of the 20, almost 25% of our clients, interestingly enough, that put it on hold in March and April, we had a 100% return rate. Every one of them came back and bought. Mm. So it was only a gap or only a bit of a speed hump. And before you said mm. you buy, sell, buy first, sell second, sell first, buy second, like what's your take on the buying, selling, selling, buying yeah. Uh, sequence? Yeah, absolutely. So again, part of the advice that we offer is because almost probably 85%, I reckon, of our home buyers are upsizing or downsizing, mm. okay, which involves a sale. Sure. That's where, again, where the holistic advice that we offer, we look at, we sit down with our clients and say, okay, great, you've got a $2 million home, you want to go to a $4 million home. All right, okay, so how does this look? Let's unpack this. These are, these are the risks going forward if you buy first, sell second. These are the risks if you sell first, buy second, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's no right or wrong. It always will come down to what they're most comfortable doing. Rule of thumb for Tom? Rule of thumb, it depends on what the market's doing. Right now, I think you're mad selling first, buying second. Why? Because the market's heading in an upward trajectory. You, in this climate, and I will have no problem saying this to a client right now, is if you are upsizing, you need to buy on today's price and sell on tomorrow's price. It makes sense. Mm. Uh, I had a client who, who sold in October because they felt like they wanted that they were more comfortable um, selling first, buying second. And if you remember October, we just came out of lockdown. We were still working out what the market was doing. And then the market has kicked an unbelievable gear since, locked, since October last year. Um, they were panicking because obviously, you know, it might have been the difference of the property that they sold was you know, circa 2.2 million. Um, that might have been the difference of maybe one or $200,000 difference if they had sold now. And so right now, like, what, what are the trends? What's going on? What are your buyers telling you? And what are you seeing in the market? Uh, it's pretty easy. Buy, buy, buy. <laughs> Everyone is buying at the moment. Um, these markets for us are like a double-edged sword. Everyone's buying. Simple as that. So, but that comes with great competition. So naturally, 
we're working a lot harder. We've got to be more strategic when we're buying for clients because we're up against the masses. And the people, you know, this whole concept of moving um, out of the out of out of the city, out of the burbs, out of the, yep. you know, having a sea change, all of, all of that stuff. Yeah, like is that real? Is that is that? It's I mean, real. it was always happening, yeah. right? We we know yeah. this. And um, at the back end of season one, I spoke to Scott Keck from Charter Keck Crayman. We had a yeah. really good discussion about this concept. Are you seeing that live for your yeah. buyers? We are. I, I, I think it, a lot of it is impulsive as well. Um, mm. We are seeing it. We're seeing more people switch to regional. You know, people are saying, well, we're going to be working from home now. Um, we're going to buy somewhere regional or we're going to buy a coastal property. You know, we, we, we're, we're getting out of Melbourne. We're done. Uh, a big percentage of those people will return. It's, fu- it's funny. It's what yeah. Scott... Said, all oh, right, yeah. But his point of view was yeah. people will move, they'll move, and I think the example he gave was they'll move to Castle Maine or they'll yep. move wherever. Yep. And then they'll realise that their kids don't have the same social yep. interaction, 100%. their friends are all. And then they'll realise, to your example before, the, um, the two kilometres away from the train station, that's really annoying me now. Correct. Now I'm not in Melbourne, I've got to drive here, drive there. This is and really the annoying commute, me now. The commute's a killer. And we've got to come back. Yep. The commutes are killer. So, you know, my advice to people that are looking at doing a huge sea change like that, I mean, I think some people, I think where the people are getting a little bit smarter is they're still keeping the Melbourne home. And if they buying, can. If they can. Yeah. And they're buying like a holiday home. Yeah, right. And then they may be living a little bit more between the two. Great. The people who are just packing up shop and moving An extreme. out to extreme, mm. I always say to them, why don't you rent for a year? Why don't you try it for a year first? Keep your Melbourne home, rent it out. And try the that goes against your buy, 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 buy now. But I, I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, mm. you're trying to avoid the expensive consequence Correct. of that yeah. knee jerk reaction. Correct. Is that right? Because my, my job is advice. You know, my job is to give my professional opinion on what's happening in the market and help people make good decisions. And you don't make money on that, right? By someone re- that's okay, re- renting a property. That's, that's, that's just good business practice, though. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, you know, I buy plenty of properties per year. You know, and then there will be people that my advice will be to not buy or people I'll say, why don't you do this first? I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I've done this for 17 years. That person will no doubt come back to me in five years' time and say, Tom, you gave me really good advice. It saved me a lot of money five years ago. We're ready to upsize. We want to buy an investment property. Can you help me? So, you know, giving good and giving the right advice will always serve me in my business, always, you know, because I'm, I'm in it for the long game as well. But... I think that when you're making a very, very big decision like that to move coastal, move regional, try it first. You know, you might just find – if you rent there for a year and you love it, then you've made the right decision and you can buy. You know, and whatever the market's doing, if the market goes up, that's okay because your house in Melbourne has gone up as well. Mm. So it's not as if you've missed the boat mm. anywhere. But what you are avoiding is paying huge costs to sell your Melbourne home, paying stamp duty for the new home – then you've got to sell the new home and move back to Melbourne, you know. Um, it's just about advice. It's about really, again, coming back to the mapping and planning it out. Mm. So you're, you're 44 point, 43, 45, whatever it was. I think there's yeah. 44, there's enough there. Mm. Like what are, the, what are the things, Tom, that people need to look at when buying property? So, yep. you know, for example, is it orientation? So is it north? Yep. Is it south? Is it the shape of... The block, like, is yeah. it like a V-shaped block that's going yeah. to be useless? Like, what are the what are some of the things that people need to keep an eye out for? Because yep. people certainly do go to open for inspections, 
they fall in love with it and for all the variety of reasons we've just talked about, they go to auction, it's high intensity, yep. they've had the 16 coffees like you talk about mm. and their hand's just going up, right? And yep. they will pay whatever the bank will lend them. And this Correct. is a fact. Prices are generally moving in line with whatever banks are lending. So if the bank's lending you $2 million, you know, you're probably going to pay 2.1 and yep. scurry around somehow find that extra 100 yep. grand, right? You will. Exactly, yep. Uh, that's what will happen and that's what happens. Mm. So what do people need to keep an eye out for and what are some of these um, points? Yeah, the yeah. points on this checklist. Well, first to break it down, um, first and foremost, I always say the property is broken up into two major factors. Um, when you're starting your planning journey, it's, it's area and accommodation. Right. So what does which, that mean? Which area do I need to live in or do I want to live in and what kind of accommodation do I need? And what I mean by that is, okay, I've got kids, I don't have kids, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how, what's the, what type of land do I need? I always say start the journey and work out your accommodation first because there's no point looking in Carlton if you can only afford, you know... Coburg. Coburg, for example. And what, what will generally happen is you've got to start with your budget. Always, always know what your budget is, first and foremost. So look at your budget and say, okay, I've got... $2 million. Okay, great. Now what accommodation do I need? Because the budget and the accommodation will therefore equal where you're going to live. Because if you need four bedrooms on 500 square metres of land, you're not going to get into Carlton for $2 million. bucks. So that's, that's the key. So once you've worked out the budget, what, what house you need, then you can start getting a read on which areas will accommodate that. Um, then... That, that's kind of, again, a bit of the, the macro of what we do, you know. But when it comes down to more the micro is the things that we look for is, again, then you've got to break the property into three three sections. So features of a property. So what kind of home, you know, a period home, like a late 1800s Victorian, early 1900s Edwardian or Art Deco, that's actually the best residential real estate you can own in terms of um, mm. scarcity and capital growth. Nothing – those properties get better over time. Whereas the more the cookie cutter new homes that are just popping up, house and land packages, etc., they're just in high supply. There's nothing scarce about them. You buy one, and then there's a whole cluster. There's a suburb built next door to you. They're they're high high supply properties. They're not really going to you know, move much in value. So you got to you got to assess the type of dwelling that you're buying, and understanding what works for you, but what's a good investment as well. You know things like is it freestanding? Is it semi-detached? That's where a lot of people get their their values wrong. They're comparing a terrace to a freestanding home. A terrace is always going to be cheaper because you're sharing two walls naturally. Um, orientation we touch on that's that's super important. You know north is always going to command the premium. People will pay. We get clients who just say we just want north facing don't show me anything else north and west is fine mm. we always find that they're the most common and where everyone gets it wrong and if you've got a crafty agent they'll say yeah the house the front of the house is facing north you know that's what they're trying to do um you know the backyard needs to face north or you know or west uh we get again uh south buying a south facing property is not what we, we don't do it um things like noise are you buying in an area you've got to check your surroundings is there Industrial nearby, uh, all those things. Uh, the streetscape, of course. Are you buying a house in a street that's full of old apartments and units? In, in an ideal world, you know, you want to have a street full of houses because generally that's going to keep the value mm. moving uh, higher. Um, you've got to look at things like heating, cooling, bedroom sizes, go measure things out. Um, you know, uh, 
flow is really important. What does that mean? So flow is, especially like if you're buying a post-war home, 1950s home, they were built where the living room's at the front of the house and you've got two or three bedrooms at the back of the house. So to get outside, you've got to walk through, you've got to walk in your driveway. Um, so basically that's a very, very poor flow because you, you don't have any flow through to the al fresco outdoor entertaining dining Bad feng shui, center. Tom. Correct, yeah. That's one of my hardest requirements for clients, <laughs> by the way, coming back to that. But, um, you know, so you've got to look at flow of the property, natural light, um, and then so there's so many features, you know, individual features, you know, uh, if you're paying – and you've also got to know what your budget gets you. If you're buying an $8 million house – I had a look at a house last week. It was quoted 9.5 to 10.4 mil – didn't have a butler pantry and didn't have an elevator from the basement to the first floor. I said to my client, this should have a butler pantry. This should have an elevator. These are what I think are flaws for a property priced around $10 million. So these are things that you just need to know. What should these homes be having at that price point? Are they lacking these things? So you've got to look at the features. The land is really, really important, of course. If you're buying a single front in Brunswick – and it's 120 square metres, that's on the low side. If you're buying one at 250, that's on the very high side. Mm -hmm. So you've got to understand, again, you've got to compare like for like. You know, um, what's the land doing? What's the shape of the land? You know, a lot of courts, a classic example where you get the house at the end of a court yeah. and the, the, the land is like a pizza slice. Yeah. It's triangular. doesn't help. Again, people don't want that. You know, a little bit of shape's okay, but generally you want a nice symmetrical square mm. slash rectangular block you've also got to look at the slope of the land as well is there a big fall is you know again coming back to the basement are they subject to flooding if you get a land especially in the east and around burundara uh manningham whitehorse around there you know it's very hilly areas you know a lot of these properties have major falls in the land and again you want to make sure the house is falling towards the front not the back so the backyard's more flush with the living area um and then location that's the key you know You'll always find we've got a we've got a golden rule, the one point five k rule. Um, we, what does that mean? So we don't advise to buy properties that are more than one point five kilometres from a train station lifestyle amenities. Mm. We find that once you push beyond one point five kilometres from these these lifestyle choices and features, um, the property value the properties are, are, are less uh, less desired. Mm. You know, the capital growth is less. The price point dips. Someone goes, oh, I, I just you know. Oh, I got an absolute steal last weekend at auction. I paid, you know, one point three for this house and one a couple of streets over, you know, pay you know, that that's couple like, of streets like oh, two what, kilometers away. Yeah, like two <laughs> kilometers away. And I said, Yeah, well that one was five hundred meters to the shops, you're two point five kilometers. Uh, you didn't really get a steal. You, you probably paid what it was worth, or you maybe paid a bit more than what it's worth. So again, it's coming back to yeah, look, all these nuances, like. nuances. I think that maybe yeah. most well, well, some people do, and some people don't think about. A couple right. of couple of quick questions, Tom, before we wrap up, and I want super short, sharp answers to these: yep. houses or apartments? House. Top three suburbs that you think are hot right now and are growing. Top three. Always based on suburb. Uh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, it's, sorry. It's always based on budget. So top three suburbs. Okay. Uh, again, suburb. Put me on the spot here. Probably for me, I love Thornbury. Mm -hmm. I think Thornbury. Uh, I think just following on the success of Northcote. Uh, Northcote. I just can't believe that Northcote's getting three, four million dollar price tags now. Uh, love Thornbury. Um, I've suburb number a long two. Time. Um, suburb number two um, would have to be 
Probably Sandringham. Really like Sandringham at the moment. I think Sandringham's really coming up. People, again, that beach lifestyle not too far from the city. Mm. Again, following on from the higher price points of Brighton and Hampton, uh, I think Sandringham is going through some really good gentrification at the moment. And number three? Number three, I'm going to try to mix it up a little bit and go in different regions. Um, number three would have to be, for me, probably Canterbury. Mm. Yeah, I really like Canterbury. There's really good stock levels at the moment in Canterbury. I think we've seen some good stock come on last year. And uh, I think Canterbury, again, following on from the Camberwells. And yeah. it's always, look, it's always been a great area. Um, but I just think there's areas at the moment that, um, you know, uh, we're seeing some really, really high demand at the moment. Yeah, and I think naturally as population has been growing, we'll, we'll yeah. know whether or not, you know, once borders and whatnot open up, as that Correct. as that continues, you have this flow-on effect from, you know, your, your CBD and start flowing out, yeah. suburb out, suburb out, suburb out. And as long as yeah. we can get good infrastructure, roads and transport with um, government uh, investment, then... Yeah. You know, I think that would be uh, supportive of property prices so that people yep. don't have to pay yep. uh, huge amounts of money just to just not have to drive two hours over the bridge or Correct. whatever the case may be. So, yep. Tom, I've really enjoyed today. I think there's mm-hmm. so much that people don't think about and I think you've touched on a number of things that people should start jotting down on paper and at least looking at some of these things, yep. um, you know, whether it's orientation or the pizza slice, slice block or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and, again, it will also be interesting as we see home uh, loan rates start to, to drop below yep. two even now, which is, to me, is, like, mind-boggling. You know, I, I thought I was a genius before the GFC locking in fixed rates at, like, 75 <laughs> 8%. And yep. I'm sure lots of other people did as well. And here we are now at... You know, high ones, um, yeah. which um, which I think will only do one thing, which increases people's uh, purchasing power, yeah. which uh, allows banks to lend more as long as people have got jobs and, and yeah. stable income, which if you look back in history, there's a very high correlation between what banks lend and what property prices do. So oh, it's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. So does, so does the, the Royal Commission was a classic example of that. In 2018, as soon as funding got tighter, the market leveled out. Yeah. It yeah. balanced out. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think regulators will, will govern uh, accordingly, but I, yeah. I just don't think um, property is just one of those things where it's, a, it's a, you know, one of the backbones of the economy and to see that get decimated and collapse just has huge uh, ramifications and consequences and you know, second order, third order effects that we, that, that we probably don't even know. Always remember 57% of Australians' wealth is in their principal place of residence. So it's pretty so crazy. If that falters or if that drops dramatically, uh, you know, it's 57% of people are relying on their principal place of residence for retirement. You know, so that you just can't afford to, to do that. Thanks again for your time, Tom. Thanks, Rob.